Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. With me, Neil Denny. This week... A personal history from journalist Ida Edamariel and her book, The Wives' Tale. Ida Edamariel grew up in Addis Ababa, Ethiopia, and then studied English literature at Oxford University and the University of Toronto. And she's worked as a journalist in New York, Toronto and London, where she is a senior feature writer an editor for The Guardian. She was a winner of a Royal Society of Literature Jerwood Award for a work of non-fiction in progress, which is the book we're going to be talking about today, The Wife's Tale, A Personal History. Ida, welcome to Little Atoms. Thank you very much for having me. So would you tell us what The Wife's Tale is about, first of all? It's about my grandmother. It's the story of a woman who was born in northern Ethiopia in about 1916, uh, I was never really able to work out exactly what year, and lived for nearly 100 years. So it's a, a century of her life and a century of the country's life. And this is your grandmother's story, but you start off and end it with sections that include yourself as well. So tell mm-hmm. us something about your own recollections of your grandmother. Well, she was... It was like she was. She was always there. I mean, she she lived in Gonda, which is in which is in northern Ethiopia. But she visited a lot. Um, my recollections are well, they're, they're stories, but they're also the, the the main ones are kind of sense recollections. She was an incredibly loving person. She was incredibly charismatic. Her major thing in a day was to have a sort of coffee ceremony in the morning, and in the afternoon she'd get away with it. But, like, but every single morning, definitely. Um, and so, and in Ethiopia, that's a you know that's a very important thing. It's like you you take the coffee beans from green, you you sort of roast them over a, over a fire, so you get the sort of fresh smell of coffee. You burn incense, sort of frankincense, um, you know resin resin incense that you is actually just taken from trees. You chat, and then and that's your sort of it's it's kind of it opens a space in the day where you can just gossip and chat and find stuff out. And she was. Brilliant at it. She was the matriarch. She was a great storyteller. But it's more, it's like I tuned into the stories later. It was more that I kind of, it was just like I loved just sitting there and just being there in the room and kind of, it was cosy and it was incredibly sort of just nice being there. <laughs> and when did this, the idea for this book start? Because you've been recording her stories for a long time, haven't you? Yes, I I went back. Um, we did an audio book, and 
I went back looking for clips to sort of drop into the audio back and I, you know, I went, my tapes go back to 1997. I mean, that's not to say that I was doing it continuously in any way. I could sort of do, you know, a couple of hours and then not do it again for sort of, you know, a couple of years and then go back again. And I don't think I knew exactly what I was going to do with it. I guess I knew, well, in my day job, I'm a journalist. I know a story when I see one. But I was like, well, I'm not sure. I'm not sure I'm old enough. I'm not sure I have enough life in, I, I haven't seen enough. I'm not sure I understand a lot of what I'm hearing. Um, that's both linguistic, because while I speak Amharic, Harry Amharic was so much more sophisticated than mine, and it had so many references. It had so many really complex references to myths, to the Bible, to sort of beliefs that I did not know even existed. Um, and, you know, to a world that was very different from mine, even though I lived in it. So that was the first thing. And the second thing was I just knew she was... I love listening to the way the language worked, sentence to sentence, and I just the, the richness of it. And I just thought, I think it would be kind of brilliant to do that in English. It would be kind of... Um, I don't know if I'm capable of it, but it would be lovely to try and translate it. And the book also details the history of Ethiopia during that nearly century mm-hmm. period of your grandmother's life. And there's had to be a lot of uh, a lot of research gone into that as well, hasn't there? <laughs> yes, I um, partly just to work out what she was talking about. Partly, I knew a lot less to my shame of Ethiopian history than I should. There was a few reasons for that. One of them was I was educated in the English system. I could, you know, at thirteen or whatever, I could draw you a, a map of the Lancashire cotton growing, having never been to Britain at all. But I could not necessarily draw you a map of Ethiopia. It was also because, um, and I have to be slightly careful about the factual detail of this, but not long after I was born, there was a revolution, and which, it, which is covered in the book. And that revolution toppled the emperor and everything, Emperor Haile Selassie, and everything that, you know, and intended to topple everything that he stood for. And it was like he didn't exist. It's an amazing thing that it was a sort of imperialist past and it was not anything to do with progress and uh, Marxism and Leninism would triumph. So history was a funny... I didn't know very much about it, so I had to do a lot of really basic reading. So there was that. But there was also the church, which which looms very, very large in the book. And actually, the whole book is structured both according to the 13 months of the Ethiopian calendar, but also according to the festivals of Mary, which are you know very important in the Ethiopian calendar. And that I... I read a huge amount about. I read the manuscripts in the British Library, the sort of um, miracles of Mary. There's some, you know, books and books of, you know, Mary only appears in the in the Bible maybe twice, <laughs> very tiny amount. But there's a whole system. There was a lot of research like that, which actually was incredibly enjoyable. There was a great book which basically went through Ethiopian novels, but looked for. You know, how do you do weddings? How do you do different kinds of weddings? And how does that, you know, how does that come through novels? Because actually what you're looking for when you're writing a book like this is the, the main big historical facts you can you can do. But, you know, she is not a she is not a historical. Well, she is because she haven't she, she lived in the past, but she's not, you know, she's not a prince or a king or a archbishop or whatever. She's just a normal person. So you have to sort of look for normal experience in the interstices of that is in those kind of rites, in the sort of the weddings, the funerals, the kind of the day-to-day preparation of food, that kind of thing. So there was a lot of research that was just really basic like that. One of the, I guess, themes of the book is this, you know, this idea of her witnessing the changes from a, you know, an almost biblical lifestyle to, you know, war and revolution into modernity. Mm. And I wonder what 
she thought about this project itself, about <laughs> the fact that you were recording her and whether or not the book was ever a, you know, a thing that was mooted at that point. But you were clearly, you know, you were recording these stories of her for posterity in some way. She knew that and she knew when I proposed the book and when it was accepted by a publisher, she knew that too. So she knew she knew I was writing a book. And actually, uh, not very long, about six months before she died, I took my daughter to see her and I took a draft of the book and I showed it to her. I mean, she doesn't read English, but I, you know, I said, look, this is your life story. So there's 60, maybe, you know, 60 hours of tape uh, with, with the basic thing, which I transcribed. I actually transcribed them twice once all the way through which takes believe me months because <laughs> I'm transcribing from Maharic into English um, and I had an awful lot of looking up to do and then after I'd done all this sort of historical research I transcribed it all again um, and heard all sorts of things I didn't hear the first time but then that doesn't count I literally spent hours on the phone with her going now did that really how did that how did that work you know how did how what no, no, no. And when you went into the church, did you leave your shoes outside? What did you do? Did you pick them up and take them in with you? Or, you know, like just there was an awful lot of that. And so she knew she was being fact-checked. I mean, although she wouldn't have had that word for it, but she knew that that was going on. So let's talk about your grandmother. So yes, I mean, you, the book begins, she's around nine years old and it's her wedding, basically. She's been betrothed to this man. Describe this scene. It happens in a church. Uh, not all weddings happened in that way. It was a very solemn... There are various tiers of weddings. This is the most serious. You're you're married for life and there is no way to break it, um, even after death, actually. Um, there were all sorts of other ways in which to get married, which were easier to get out of, but this was one of them. He was a priest. He would have been studying ever since he was a small child to be a priest, so he would have been learning all the books of the Bible he learned it all by heart. One, because all priests did, and two, because his father cursed him as a child and he wasn't allowed to write, so then he just had to learn everything by heart. And he was marrying her. He became a sort of fully-fledged priest, so that was that was part of it. And, you know, the way she described it, she said, you know, she described sort of the, you know, the jewellery on, you know, her anklets. She described the dresses she was married with. She had seen him quite a lot before because he used to come to the, her aunt's where she lived. Um, he used to come there and read the Bible in the mornings. But that was just like background noise almost. You know, you just like, you get this person just sort of droning on while everybody goes on with their housework. You know, it's, it's almost like we're listening to the radio now or a podcast or whatever. <laughs> they listen to the Bible. But, you know, this is the first time she looked at him and go, oh my God, I think I'm married to him. But I think that what she also said was, you know, you don't really comprehend what it is that's happening. You, know, you sort of both know and don't know as a child what's what's going on. Um, so I think I think that was something that she really described quite vividly. So tell us something about him. So he's at that moment uh, quite a, a lowly priest, but he's got ambitions, hasn't he? Oh yes. <laughs> yeah, in that way, the people who are not born into into privilege and station. He kind of knew that it was up to him to make his way. And so he, yeah, he was ambitious. He he married her. I mean, one of the attractions of marrying her was that she came from a very good family. It's not nobility, but it's sort of... Um, her father was very proud of counting things, but, you know, it was pretty distant. So marrying her was a good step. It, it sort of married him, because so he was from Godjam, which is a neighbouring province. And in, in that time, they were pretty xenophobic about each other. Right, you're Godjam, you might be you might be next door, but that makes you a foreigner. 
And so it married him in, into a local, you know, a good local family. So that was a big social step. Um, and then he went off to Empress Zoditus. So, there were, you know, um, Ethiopia had an empress and he went off to petition her for a living, I guess what you would call it. And she gave him one of the greatest churches of Gondor, which is which is a city of, you know, I don't know if it's actually got 44, but it's the, town, you know, it's the city of 44 churches. Um, and she gave him one of the richest and grandest. And he went home and, and ran that. So that's the Bata Church. Bata. Bata Church. <laughs> and um, he becomes the Alekwa, the leader of that church. Mm. Um, let's talk about that church, but also tell us something about the Ethiopian Orthodox Church. You mentioned a few things already, but in some ways in which it's different from what we would recognise. Um, it's very old. It's something like 3rd century AD. It's very old. It's older than the English church by a long way. It's um, because it was so old, it's, it carries with it quite strong Judaic, mm-hmm. you know, because obviously Christianity, you know, came from a Judaic tradition. And sort of, so, you know, the food rules are very Judaic, you know, unclean meat, unclean, unclean meat, all that kind of circumcision, all that kind of stuff. Um, but, you know, it's a Coptic church and, and it was run from Alexandria for a long time, which is one of the big issues that came up in the in the sort of second world war so i mean the story is that these two boys on a ship from tyre were shipwrecked on the coast um near Aksum, and they made their way to the court where they converted the emperor's son and when one of them was grown he he went back to alexandria and they said well you know, you know look he said you look you know we've got loads of merchants here for example you know so so because ethiopia was a was a crossroads uh, a sort of trade crossroads from you know, the Middle East, from the Far East. And we have loads of merchants in this port who need a bishop. Uh, and they said, well, why don't you, you know, off you go, why don't you be their bishop? <laughs> and so it was run, it was weirdly run from Alexandria. So it has quite, you know, it's a, Copt- it a Coptic church. Um, the Ethiopian church is, as the church was here, there's a church language and the daily language. The daily language well, there are 80-odd languages in Ethiopia, but the language that was spoken in Gondor is Amharic, and the language of the church is Gurs. So as in Latin, the liturgy, the poetry, all of that is in Gurs, and, and that's what the priesthood speak, but their congregation don't. Um, so there is that kind of... If you imagine the sort of the Canterbury tale, or even sort of further than that, the sort of Tudor, you know, sort of Hilary Mantel kind of territory, the ways in which... The church is, has huge power in people's daily life. That is very much... I mean, it still does, possibly less than it used to, but it, it still does, absolutely. It is entirely... You know, everybody has a confessor. You know, I can't know, can I ever say this way. Everybody has a, a father confessor, you know. The rhythms of your life are, are governed by spiritual fast days. You know, you're, you fast every Wednesday and Friday. You know, it, it's, it is utterly part of the warp and weft of your life. Um, and that's one of the things I tried to catch without being preachy about it. I tried to get that that was the thing that gave things structure. That and the agricultural year were, were the things that absolutely gave you know life structure. So let's talk about what life is like for the wife of a cleric at this point. There's an awful lot of cooking. I mean, there's always an awful lot of cooking. But, but cooking for other people, though. Cooking for other people, very much so. You know, it's an administrative job that he did. And, you know, as with anybody that, you know, here you might go and take somebody out for lunch at the restaurant, but they're usually brought them home. So she never knew how many people were going to turn up. Um, And cooking is not a small thing when, you know, everything, everything is from first principles. (laughs) 
So, you know, what comes to your house, and they were very lucky in this way, are tides. I mean, I guess that's one of the other things about about it is the distance that is travelled between her childhood mm-hmm. and now. But So they had tides. So there were church tides, and there were tides because... Um, her husband had this, you know, owned some land north of Gonda, and the tides, you know, they would vary from ten to twenty to thirty percent, and this would just turn up as grain, you know, it would turn up as barley, as wheat, as as chili peppers, as honeycomb, and then you had to work with these raw materials, <laughs> and she was really, really good at it. Um, but it's it's hard physical labour. Yeah, she was an amazing cook, but you know, you have to pick through the grain to take all the all the sand out of it you have to grind it quite often you you know you grind it with a grinding stone and so all women would have had some version of that <laughs> but she just had a great deal more and she was also beyond that there were sort of requirements because she had to sort of uphold a kind of honor and uphold a kind of you were an example to the community as much as anything else so there was a kind of what shall i say you know don't take bribes don't take, you know you had to just you had to be very um, controlled in your public life, if you had one. <laughs> hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. You're listening to Little Atoms. I'm Neil Denny. Today I'm talking to Ida Edomarian, and we're talking about her book, The Wife's Tale. And Ida, let's get up to about 1935, and Italy invades and occupies the country for, you know, the next five years. So I want to talk about what's going on there with the family during this period of time. But also, your grandmother's 
she's relentlessly having children all through this period as well, mm. coinciding with that occupation. Let's talk about those things. So when the Italians invaded, they had unfinished business. They had previously attempted to annex um, Ethiopia. It hadn't worked because um, Emperor Menelik and his empress, actually, who led tens of thousands of men into battle personally, repelled them. Mussolini had something to prove about the, the superiority of Italy and of Europe. And so, you know, they, they really came in with all their huge forces. And yeah, and among those was the use of mustard gas, which they basically crop dusted. The planes just sprayed mustard gas, which I think was illegal at the time. But, you know, they did it anyway. Haile Selassie went to the League of Nations to complain who's Times Man of the Year, because Ethiopia at that point was, was a member of the League of Nations. And all the so-called member states who were supposed to come out in aid of a beleaguered co-member didn't. And when the Italians won, Emperor Haile Selassie left. Um, leaving his country without an Ethiopian ruler. He went to the League of Nations and then he went in there and he came to Britain um, and lived in exile here for five years. Um, I think I think one of the things that I thought quite hard about was how war is experienced by people who are not fighting it and mm-hmm. people who are not, you know, it was by women, largely, uh, by women and children. And the way in which life goes on, it just does, it has to. You can't stop because suddenly there were some Italians in the castles up, you know, up the road. I remember when I was about 15, we had an attempted coup d'etat and we were sort of coming home from school and MIGs came over very low and then the next day nobody went to school or work or anything like that. But I remember listening to the radio and if you'd listened to the radio and you weren't in Ethiopia and so a lot of relatives got really freaked out, you know, who weren't in Ethiopia, you'd have thought that the whole city was at war. But it wasn't. Like the only bit was like this bit about them around the Ministry of Defence downtown Everything else was just like, yeah, well. And I've always thought about that. News stories give you the sense that the entire place is a conflagration, but it just doesn't really work like that. And so the kind of mundanity of life and the sort of enormity of what's actually happening to the country just coexist. Um, the other thing is, is the way in which kind of war is, I don't know, sort of the traumas are not necessarily all physical, clearly. So, you know, fear... My grandmother had never met an airplane before until they started bombing Gondor. You know, you know that's quite the association. And it's a very, you know, to live in, in that kind of fear for a long time. The Italians cracked down incredibly hard. One of their first viceroys was really, really cruel. He had been famously cruel in his previous postings. And their method of kind of dissuading people, you know, first of all, you, you I think it was a sort of death penalty or whatever, you know, you got terrible punishment if you own arms, which is crazy in a country where any man who's worth anything carries arms. And they were sort of very public about their um, punishments, their sort of gallows, so they're kind of, you know, there's pictures, you know, sort of severed heads, the whole, this is an interesting kind of picture to come across in your in your research. But alongside this was the fact that while well, Mussolini had a kind of totally fascist, you know, there must be a separation of of us and them, you know, was the fact that he also had troops where, you know, loads of sort of Italian men who were far from home, who come from the countryside, didn't really see what the problem was, who often fell in love with Ethiopian women, who kind of, you know, there was a lot of sort of that kind of thing going on. And sort of midway through the war, they passed this law, which kind of was amazing. It was just like it was fine to have relations with a woman as long as there was no love involved. If there was love involved... It was a criminal offence and you were jailed. And so, you know, there's insane <laughs> setups where you had, you know, do you love this woman? Well, if you don't, that's okay. 
So there was a quite, um, it was always messy. It was always messy in the actuality. Well, the other thing, of course, that happens during war, as well as the destruction and the atrocities and the murders, is a lot of modernisation takes place and the, and the existing Absolutely. social order is shaken up. So once then, in forty one, the, the Italians are deposed and Haile Selassie comes back, a lot of people are quite ambivalent about that. Some people, yes. Well, it's true. And they'd be ambivalent for all sorts of different reasons. So, for example, there were lots of rebel leaders who suddenly, you know, they were leaders and they had fought really hard for their country. And, you know, the emperor came back and just expected to be in charge again because he was emperor. And so that was always, you know, that's quite a sort of complex dynamic. The Italians did an amazing amount of modernization. They did it very fast. They did it, you know, it makes you think of this sort of old Roman Empire, you know, they would build roads everywhere. Well, the Italians still built roads everywhere. And the Italian roads and bridges were they're still there when, you know, they might have been replaced by Chinese roads now, I don't know. But the, you know, Italian plumbing, the hospital that my mum worked in, you know, it was still functioning on Italian plumbing. Can't remember at one point they sort of retired the guy who used to do their plumbing and then promptly had to rehire him because they suddenly realised that this you know, elderly Italian gentleman was the only person who knew where all the pipes were, you know. <laughs> so there is <laughs> so that and, and, you know, there's a certain degree of that to which sort of people were grateful. They were just like, look, we have roads, we have plumbing, we have electric lighting in areas that maybe, you know, the government, the central imperial government had never quite bothered to provide. Although I have to say that um, one thing that did happen was when the British came, so the Allies, you know, the Italians were expelled with the help of Britain and they saw all this modernisation, they saw the factories that the Italians had established and they thought, oh, well, you know, this is too good for... And they were just, in about a year, they dismantled them and they took them for their own colonies, which was, you know, astonishing. And then the emperor could hang on a second, you don't get to do that. You don't get to just take apart our factories and send them to, I can't remember where, Somaliland or something, which is what they still, you know, owned or whatever. You know, and there was chaos, after, clearly chaos, in a lot of places where people who, you know, rebel fighters who... There was a whole gamut between, you know, very pure rebel leader to bandit. And often, you know, depending on who you were, what you called them how you describe them and sometimes they're clearly you know they could, you could easily be both on the same day you know? and that you know fighting over property there was a lot there's a huge amount to sort out and it was completely chaotic and I think I think that was very difficult and also actually one of my grandmother's sons who was incredibly ill died at the same time as that so I think that's a very traumatic time I sort of can't, can't imagine apart from youth and selective forgetting how you would you know manage so during the the wartime, your grandfather had lost that church. Yeah. Um, gets it back, and and the family again prosper for a while under the emperor under Haile Selassie. But then things go wrong again, and he's sort of denounced and imprisoned, mm-hmm. and and it becomes your grandmother's role then to basically petition the court for for his freedom, and this goes on for a number of years. What happened? So yeah, he was he was imprisoned. Um, I've never really quite entirely got to the bottom of of why, but he was imprisoned. And she, having been sort of having lived, you know, run her household and not really gone very far apart from church and maybe a couple of relatives' houses, she went to see him in prison. And he said, "Well, you know, I don't think I'll get basically. I don't think I'll get an entirely fair trial here. Go to Addis Ababa." And she, having you know never been to Addis Ababa, left and went. And I mean, she would have been. 
She would have been in her early 30s. She would have already had 10 pregnancies by that point. But she was sort of, she was young and she was suddenly thrust into speaking for her husband and trying to get him, you know. And she, she got to the judge and she also got to the emperor. And so she stood in front of the emperor and said, you know, may his case be heard? And he said, yes. But before he could be transferred to Addis to be tried in Addis, he died. And she was asked to come back, but she wasn't told why. In Ethiopia, the custom is that you kind of have to be, you have to be told face to face. And so she walked into her compound and there was, it was full of mourners and she knew her husband had died. So she had a sort of very difficult period then. And one of the things that she did, even though she was sort of counseled not to, was to go back to Addis Ababa and petition to clear his name. And she did that for five or six years. She did it for a long time. And petitioning to clear his name meant standing outside one the princess's gate. It meant stand, It meant going to the palace every day. She would not have been the only person. That that was basically how stuff got done. It's how her, her, her husband got his job in Baata. You, you went and you asked directly. And if they took three years of waiting, that's what you did. And there is a place I went to um, when I was researching it. I went to the old palace, is now part of the Addis Ababa University um, and the Ethiopian Institute. And I went and asked, there's an old retainer of Haile Selassie who still works. I mean, I don't know if he does now, but he did three years ago, four years ago. And he stands in um, Haile Selassie's old bedroom. And I sort of said, you know, so where do the petitioners all stand? And he went, just, just there, just down there. And they just waited for when he came out and when he came in. And you sort of, you know, you sort of prostrate yourself or, you, or you'd write your petition on a piece of paper and his car would slow and you could hand a piece of paper in, and he would stay up and read them. So she did that for years. And in the end, she, she didn't get to clear his name because um, I think he... I, I don't really know what happened. I think he, he did this extraordinary thing. I mean, she always kind of went, you know, and then he did this, and, then, and her finger would be pointing to the sky, and he said, tell that to him. It's just like, tell that to God. I suspect that there were quite a lot of very powerful people involved, and uh, he probably thought that this particular case, it wasn't worth his while to ruffle particular feathers in... Uh, but what he did do was he said, all of your children will be educated at boarding school. And that was a huge thing because very, a very small percentage of the country got that chance. And so your children will go to boarding school and they will get modern schooling and they will, you know, that is what I give you. And that's a, a remarkable thing. But at the same time, it means that, you know, her children in some sense leave her. Yes. And yes. she's now a widow. Yes. And... She now lives through, you know, the overthrow of Haile Selassie, Mengistu's revolution, civil war, the Red Terror, all of this stuff. Tell me about her, how she survived those times. It's interesting. You, it goes back to that thing of just life just goes on. It goes on almost regardless of all the other stuff going on. And, that, and it impinges on you, impinges on you, of course. Um, when the uh, Marxist regime took over and nationalised all the land, she lost all the land that was her income in one fell, like, but everybody else in the country did at the same time. But I think it's interesting, the thing you say about sort of education. I mean, I think it happens everywhere. The education has this extraordinary, th- it is a gift. It is an incredible gift. I would, you know, I would not be here if, you know, and I would not have the education that I have if she had not done that for her children. But it also it, it creates this gulf. I remember reading a biography, Claire Tomlin's biography of Thomas Hardy, and being really struck by how his education and his fame, and he was you know a member of the London clubs, and then he would go home and find it really hard to talk to his family because they just existed in different worlds. And I think that happens. It happens now for in families where you know the previous generation didn't go to university. You know her children used to laugh at her because she used to praise the inventor of the airplane. 
isn't it amazing that the airplane was invented isn't it amazing that the telephone was invented and you're just like well yes but the reason why you need them is because your children are so far away i think that's one of the sadnesses but again i mean there's a sort of you go on you go on i've been talking to ida edamariam we've been talking about her book the wife's tale a personal history which is out now from fourth estate ida thank you so much for coming in and sharing it with me thank you so much thank you this episode of Little Atoms was produced and presented by me, Neil Denny, and was first broadcast on Resonance 104.4 FM. Little Atoms is supported by 89Up, and the podcast is hosted by Acast. Find us on iTunes, and if you like the show, please do leave us a review. You can find old interviews, new journalism and more on our website, littleatoms.com. Thanks for listening. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.